This is Fails and Fixins, and I am your host, Dave Plow. This week, we're going to take a look at the day a music genre dropped dead. But before we do, I should let you know that Fails and Fixins starts as a Facebook Live broadcast, originating at facebook.com slash fixins. That's F-I-X-I-N-S. Every Monday morning at 9.30 a.m., you can come there and watch me give these presentations, or you can listen to the podcast. Either way, you're supporting us, and we thank you for that. Now, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in and learn a little bit about the day disco died. Let's get this party started. I'm your host, Dave Plow. I'm coming to you live from the bright yet frigid digital buzz studios. You guys probably can't see it, but there is frost on some of these windows. It is cold outside. It is cold in here. You know, having an office window with a window is great, but having an office with a ton of windows can get downright chilly. So we're not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about the day disco died. So to get you guys in the mood, to give you an idea of what the world was like back then, let's take a look at what was going on. It was the end of the 1970s. Saturday Night Fever had spent weeks as the number one movie in America. Ronald Reagan had already made one and was uh, gearing up to make a second presidential bid. And finally, disco was unavoidable. Donna Summers and the Bee Gees were on constant radio rotation. Kiss had even tried to dip their paint into the disco well. At this particular moment in history, not everyone liked a disco. Most people had some sort of definitive good or bad opinion on it. Some loved it. Some hate it. What is someone who works in broadcast radio to do? If they're working for a rock station and they get fired on New Year's Eve, or not New Year's Eve, on Christmas Eve of 1978, what do you think that guy's opinion on disco is? Well, I can tell you for Steve Dahl of Chicago, his opinion was not good. He already disliked disco, but after his firing, his radio station fired him because they were switching formats to what? Disco. That's right. So from rock radio to disco, this guy was not happy. And he was a pretty popular radio personality in Chicago, and it didn't take him long before he landed a new job for a rock radio station. They were 97.9 WKLP. It took him less than a week, actually, to get that job. So by the new year, 1979, he has a job. Part of Dahl's new strategy at his new station was to trash disco as much as possible. He was angry, and you know what? He had every right to be angry. He was mad he didn't like disco. He's a rock radio station. So what he did was he hosted regular segments where he would trash the music and its singers. He even went on to parody Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy, which, by the way, is a terrible song. But he made his own parody of it. And it peaked at 58 on the Billboard Top 100. That is a national ranking. That means people outside of Chicago are paying attention to what this guy has to say about disco. We're going to shift gears a little bit here. We're going to talk about America's pastime because in the 70s, America's pastime was baseball and it truly was America's pastime. It's not like today where people just kind of say it, but everybody watches football. People watched baseball and you know what? Baseball is a great live event. 
Baseball is a great live event, but it can get a little dull. If a game's not exciting or the teams that are playing aren't particularly good, you're just sitting in the stands for a long time. It falls upon the promotions manager to make sure the crowd stays involved and stays excited. Now, in the 70s, it wasn't unheard of for teams to play doubleheaders, especially to make up games that were canceled for rains or something like that. They don't do doubleheaders today, really. But doubleheaders were a thing. And it made for a long day because you'd sit through one entire baseball game, you'd have a break, and then you'd sit through another baseball game. So getting people to attend, the teams were great, and it was not as difficult. But if the teams weren't great, as the Sox were at this time, it could be kind of a slog to get people there. What the White Sox decided to do was they'd heard of this doll guy, and they knew he was a local personality to Chicago. And they knew of his campaign to end disco. And people within the White Sox organization, they weren't against that campaign. So they reached out to Dahl and his radio station. And they thought that teaming up might be mutually beneficial for the night of a doubleheader. At the time, the White Sox had pretty low attendance. Once again, not a great team. So they were hoping this event would boost their numbers to around 18,000. And Dahl has since said that he was hesitant to take this job because he was afraid he'd be sitting there doing some kind of stunt and there'd only be 5,000 people in attendance. Dahl reached out to his anti-disco army, that's what he was calling his fans at the time, and they answered the call of their leader. He decided that, hey, here's the promotion we're going to run. The White Sox signed off on this. And the deal was, if you brought a disco record to Comsky Park, where the White Sox played that night, your ticket would be discounted from around $6 to $0.98 cents for anyone who brought a, brought a disco record. And the plan was that in between the double headers, they'd throw all these disco records into a crate and just blow it up. Just blow it up. Boom. Explosion, right? Well, it sounds like a fun event. And apparently it sounded like a fun event to a lot of Dolls listeners because over 50,000 people were admitted to Comsky Park. It's estimated that it held only around 44,000 people. That doesn't even take into account the fact that it's estimated another 20,000 crashed the gates and just came in. So you can imagine what kind of rowdy, rambunctious crowd this is. They had struck a chord that was much bigger than any chord they meant to struck. Now, a lot of the people that showed up, you can imagine were not big baseball fans. They were there for the explosion. So instead of watching the first baseball game and enjoying it the way baseball's meant to be enjoyed or the way you're supposed to, they got drunk. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They had cheap beer prices that night. So people were imbibing, and they were imbibing easily and cheaply. And this is a crowd that wasn't really there for baseball, so they're restless. They're a little bit bored watching the games. And boredom and drunkenness put together can be slightly dangerous. The crowd started throwing things. By the end of the first game, pitchers didn't want to go into their bullpens to warm up because they were getting hit with beer bottles and glasses. And I do say beer bottles because in these days, they gave people bottles of beer. They had glass bottles so they could just chuck them at things. And the bullpens became dangerous. The players didn't want to go. The game ends, and Dahl and company take the field. Dahl did an introduction, which kind of rallied people up. He was doing his disco shtick, and people were, you know, buying into it like they do. He gets out this big crate that's full of records. 
It's a huge crate. They bring it out and they explode it. And they had it so wired with explosive that records were shooting, you know, 25, 30 feet in the air. They were shooting in the crowd. They were shooting everywhere. And everyone cheered. Everyone's super excited. People were in the stands. They were rallying. And they were, that's what they were there for. They had so many extra people there that people then started to kind of flood the field. Now, I don't know what you know about sports or what you don't know about sports, but the only people that are supposed to be on the field are the athletes, the coaches, the medical personnel, and the referees. Definitely not the crowd. I'm a Pacer fan, so I know all about what happens when a crowd hits a field. It's not good. So they begin rushing the field, and as the field filled with people, the people that were in charge, the people responsible for this mess, decided it was time to escape. So they got out, like Dahl and like his people, they tried to jump into a Jeep and they couldn't get anywhere, so they got out and they ran. The people who own the Sox organization locked up the owner's boxes. The teams retreated. They went into their dugouts, they went into their locker rooms, and they locked those doors. And they just kind of like, they, according to reports, according to the oral history of this whole thing, they were just occasionally looking out to see what would happen, to see if it was safe to go outside yet. But on the field, well, it was filling with people. And fans began running the bases they stole as much equipment as they could, including the actual bases, and they were causing a general ruckus, which, you know, causing a ruckus is bad, but things get a little bit worse here because some people took seats out the stands and they brought them into the infield and then they decided to have a bonfire. Why not? You got some beers, you got a field, start a bonfire, right? Not a good idea in a baseball stadium. Eventually, the police were called and the AP were called. At the end of the day, 29 people were arrested and the American League declared the game a forfeit by the White Sox. They wouldn't even let them uh, replay the game. So it was a forfeit for the White Sox. People are arrested. The police are at Comsky Park. The whole thing is a mess. And, you know, I'm not sure we can call it a failure. Because this is kind of what they were working for. They were hoping to draw more people to the stadium, to this baseball game. And it wasn't an unheard of practice. Like, if you go to a minor league game or a major league game right now, there's going to be some kind of event going on in between innings or at the seven-inning stretch. Things happen. They keep the games moving and keep things interesting. Part of what makes baseball a great live event. So what do you do to improve upon the situation? How do you keep this mob at bay? And once again, isn't this a case of things simply working too well? Kind of yes to all these things. Like there are ways to improve the situation and to keep the mob at bay. But also this was an event that worked. You could say worked too well. And sometimes too well is a bad thing. To look at how we could improve this particular situation, I want to take a look at another situation, which is uh, in some ways similar in that it was a stunt that went a little too well, but these people found a way to fix it and to use it and to move on with it. This is many years later, 20 years later, in fact. It's 1999 uh, in San Francisco. Casa Sanchez was a local restaurant and was well-established. Uh, I forget how many years it had been around, but it had already been around for quite a while. And what they decided to do was they made an offer to any customer who got a tattoo of their logo, which was a guy in a sombrero, Riding a cob of corn like a rocket. Any customer who gets this tattoo could have a free lunch combo for life. So a lunch combo is typically a burrito and a drink and I think some rice. I, I can't remember. It's like one small side. The owner thought this was too outrageous for anyone to do. She thought it would be just kind of a handful of people, two, three, four, maybe five. They might even get to ten. But they had a loyal fan base and they underestimated that fan base. 
Somewhere around 30 to 40 people got these tattoos and they realized they were in deep because that many people cashing in on free lunch every day for life. So it goes 40, 50 years. They could eat there every day. We're talking $5.8 million worth of lost profits there. So they saw this. They saw this mob at the gates, much like the Chicago White Sox did. And they said, we have to do something different. Now, they were in a different situation in that these weren't people that just showed up day of. They realized, okay, we have to put a cap on this. So they didn't backtrack. They didn't change the deal. But what they said was, we're going to allow 10 more people to do this deal. So the next 10 that want to do it can do it. But... You have to go through a screening process because we don't want just anybody walking around with our logo. And we want to be sure that you are someone that can represent our company. So they screened them. They allowed 10 more people in. And those 10 people have those burrito deals or those lunch combo deals. And they've been going there for years. And because of them, they've actually garnered a ton of attention, a ton of press. And they have a lot more customers that come in other than just those you know, 40 or 50 people that have those tattoos. In fact, the, the thing became such a success because they realized their limitations that they, they brought it back in 2010 uh, towards the end of the recession. And they said, hey, we understand times have been tough and we're going to allow you know, 15 more people, 10 or 15 more people to get these tattoos if they want to do free lunch. So use what you learn there. A group that saw their promotion was going so well that they were going to have problems. They instead turned it into a positive by putting a cap on it and spinning things just a little bit. What? How could you apply that to the Chicago White Sox and the disco demolition issue? Looking out, you're the Chicago White Sox and you're the disco demo people. You know you're going to make a little bit of news just by blowing up this crate. I don't know how you don't realize that. So you say, all right, people are going to know people are going to be interested. We need to cap the number of 98 cent tickets we allow in here. So say you put a 10,000 people cap. First 10,000 people here with a disco record get 98 cent admission to Comsky Park for doubleheader between the White Sox and the Detroit Lions. So you probably end up with like, you still end up with a good number of people showing up because you're definitely going to get what, I mean, hindsight's 2020, but it seems like you definitely still get those 10,000 people, 10,000 plus out that night for the 98 cent ticket in the disco demolition. Now, more people are going to show up than that because there are actual baseball fans out there. I mean, they, they, they had attendance numbers. They just weren't great. So after those 10,000 people, you start charging that $6 price. And what you do is you get your baseball fans in there. You keep a lot of the rowdies that are there just for the ruckus out. They see $6 ticket price. They're not, they don't care if they have a disco record to blow up. They're going to go somewhere else and blow it up and have their beers. What you've done now is you've cut down on the crowd. You've cut down on a lot of the ruckus. And you're probably going to make a little bit extra money because for every $6 ticket, that's the same as six of those 98 cent tickets. So your money, as the White Sox were truly worried about, they still get their immense numbers. You still have your event. Chances are it still makes the news. Like you're already a national radio personality. I say this solves all the issues. Now, if you can think of something that would work better, or you have a better idea on how to solve this, go ahead and email me at dave at failsandfixins.com or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Let us know what you think. If you have a better idea or you have something else that you think will work, let us know. We'll respond to you. We can have a conversation. Let us know what you think between now and next week when I come at you with another fail and another fix. 